0: At Her Spirit, we're here for you. We want to help you discover your potential, achieve your goals, ignite your fitness, find your community. Head to herspirit.co.uk and sign up for our core membership. Get access to our virtual classes, monthly challenges, expert advice and track your progress in our health hub. You'll also find your very own cheerleading squad who will support you every step of the way. Use the code HERSPIRITPOD3 and get three months completely free. It's time for you.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome back again to the Her Spirit podcast with me, Louise Minchin and Annie Emerson. And I know we're always super, super excited about our guests, Annie, but I am literally over the moon about our guest today. She is the most wonderful writer. Um, I know that you are, or I mean, I think I've introduced her writing to you, haven't
2: I? I'm almost embarrassed to say it because I've seen her books in so many places and I love to read, although having had children in the last 10 years, I've read a lot less. She's putting in the excuses, Annie, aren't you? <laughs> but i i having started um the the first book of our author um i'm so excited because it's absolutely the style of writing that I really love. So, um, so I'm so happy to be talking to her, and I'm so happy that I've got a new author to read. So, happy days. I know. I,
1: I feel. Do you know? I genuinely feel quite excited for you because it's like passing over a gift, isn't it? And I know I didn't know that you liked historical writing and uh, historical novels and all the rest of it. So, so I'm so excited. Um, let me give her a proper introduction. Um, she is a multi-million-selling author of the Longadock trilogy, and I hope I've said that right. She will correct me in the moment. Oh yeah thumbs up i've got um you might have read some of her books for example labyrinth uh, the citadel um amazing one of my favorite books ever which we'll talk about later um the winter ghost as well her books have been translated into 38 languages, published in more than 40 countries uh she's written works of non-fiction i'm going to go on and on but <laughs> i am going to induce her and tell her tell you who she is she is kate Moss. And I feel like I shouldn't have to say this, but it's Kate Moss with an E. And I know, Kate, that that is something you get... So we already had somebody message us going, how does she say
3: so slim when she's only 46? But anyway, go on, Kate Moss. <laughs> well, indeed, how do I say so slim when I'm only uh, 46? Um, now, in fact, today I've got a big piece in The Guardian about Amsterdam, which is where my new novel, The City of Tears, is set. And at the end of it, they have spelt it without out an E. So I'm no. already getting comments saying, <laughs> Which one is this? I mean, I've I've lived with this obviously because I am a little bit older than uh, the other Kate Moss, <laughs> and I used to have this experience when I lived in London, where people would arrive, taxi drivers, and then you could see them thinking this doesn't look right, <laughs> and then I'd open the door, and their little faces would fall, and it would just be you know the older writer, shorter more tired person, um, but, you know, hey, I'm here. I'm here, I, I, that's here and so, happy. <laughs> I, I met you some, some years
1: ago now, but I didn't ask you at the time, or maybe I did, um, have you met the other Kate Moss?
3: I have not met her, but... Uh, we both know of each other's existence, so- and one of the, one of the things that is most prized. I have this lovely cartoon, a Kipper cartoon, uh, which my publishers bought for me when my novel, Labyrinth, two thousand and five novel, which is the novel that kind of made it possible for me to be a full time writer, went you know did did rather well, and they bought me the cartoon. And the cartoon is that Kate Moss in the back of a taxi, and the the, the punchline is my wife loves your novels. You know, so, and that sits at Pride Place. So, you know, one day we will do a modelling session together. I'm nearly 60 and I am probably the same thinness of her, but I'm a lot shorter. and more crinkled <laughs> oh it's lovely I love that you've embraced
1: that um so there's Tim Minchin the sort of comedian isn't there um from Australia and often people think that I am well he is, it ranges from he's my son he's my brother <laughs> he's my husband and actually it kind of goes kind of a little bit crazy every now and then and he's claimed me I mean he's not my cousin but he's just claimed me as my cousin you you yeah, need to embrace yeah. these things
3: don't you yeah 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 you can't and also you know what I really admire her. I think she's great. I think she's a woman who knows what she wanted. She's done her own thing. She's made her own story from all of these things. So that's fine. I mean, it would be different if you were sharing a name with somebody who had done many ghastly and appalling things. That would be more difficult, I feel.
2: (laughs) Oh, okay. honestly, I have a list this long of questions that I want to ask you about everything to do with reading, writing, um, being an author. But I think we should start um with how it all started for you because it's one of those I don't know if we can call it a sliding door movement but you had an opportunity you were um to work with a, you got offered a big publishing job correct me if i'm wrong or it was become an author and thankfully for millions of people around the world you chose the latter
3: <laughs> well yes it was i mean you know you know what it's like it's um afterwards you kind of put a much more sensible shape on things than it ever feels like at the time. You know, in when we're watching a, a film or in the theatre or, or in a, on the pages of a book, the big moments are clear because, of course, all of us as writers, and, you know, that's what we make happen. But in real life, you never quite know the big moments because there isn't music playing in the background. It's only when you look back and you think... Oh, wow, that was a big, big decision. So the thing was that I'd been working in publishing very happily, not intending to work in publishing, but like lots of people come out of university in the early 80s, was trained as a secretary. And that's what you did then. You know, that's that's what, you know, I had an English degree and that was super helpful. Um, So I went to be a secretary and then was offered a full time job in a publishing company. So I'd never intended to be a publisher, but it was great. And then I was offered a big job and I would got my daughter was 18 months old and I was just pregnant with my son. And I was offered this job and I did have that sliding doors moment or more epiphany moment, you know, the sort of da-da. <laughs> it was the music. I gave my own music at that moment um, when I thought, OK, if I take this job now, what I'm saying is I'm going to be a publisher. This is what I want my career to be, because with one child and another one on the way, I would have been tied into, uh, you know, earning to making a living in that sort of way. So I I jumped. And I just met uh, an agent friend of mine, and I've been complaining that the book I was um, I wanted to read when I was pregnant, first time round, was still not there. And he challenged me, and he just said, "Well, why don't you stop moaning about it and write it?" And I said, "Well, okay, I will." And I was, you know, newly pregnant, so you're, you're kind of thinking about these things anyway. And he's very—he's been my agent ever since, um, for all these years, thirty years odd. But he—he he says actually, it wasn't as quick as I've always made it sound. But in my memory. I went home and he rang up hours later and said, <laughs> I have you a publishing deal. So I've made that into a story as well. But it, it is what happened, just, you know, knowing that I'd get stuck if I didn't jump now.
1: Well, and that's, a, I mean, that's a hugely brave thing to do because presumably there's lots of implications there, including sort of financial implications of a job that, you know, you know you you could have had and then, you know, launching yourself into a very much, you know, unknown territory from a writer's point of view.
3: Yeah, and, um, and my very wonderful um and fantastic husband was at that moment training to be a teacher and I'd always been the um the, the full time wage in our house. Um, so it wasn't as if there was a cushion anywhere. It was it was a big family decision for me to, to not be working full time because that had been what I did, um, and Greg had worked part time looking after our, our daughter, and you know, was now training to be a teacher. So it, you know, yeah, they, they were they were tricky years, uh, a few early tricky years. Um, but you know, you've got you've got to do it. It's that it's that thing, isn't it? That you, you live once, you live mm-hmm. once, and you've just got to have a go at stuff. And in the end, you know, I became an overnight success. Um, when I was forty-five, about fifteen years <laughs> after that, so right. you know, it, you know, it was it was a long time of thinking. Ah, oh, should I get another job? And that yeah. was fifteen years. And what you written? Sort of four books, was it by then? I'd written four books. I'd written two nonfiction and two uh, novels um, that were not very good. But because of how things have worked out, they now. Uh, sort of live in everybody's memory as they were very literary by which they mean (laughs) nobody bought them (laughs) but they just weren't very good because um because do you know what it was it was like it was going to Kakasson and falling in love with the history there which turned into what I always call the whispering in the landscape which is that I just knew that there was a story and with the novel Labyrinth it was a completely different experience so it was okay I know how to do this And it wasn't till writing Labyrinth that I discovered who I was as a writer. Before that, it's as if I was sitting on my own shoulders, writing from the outside in, kind -hmm. of thinking, oh, you need to do this, you need to do that. I was kind of criticising and editing before I'd even written. Whereas with Labyrinth, it was completely the other way around. It came from somewhere inside and the characters were there and the story was there and it felt like it really mattered. Um, And then I was lucky that it turned out people did want to read adventure stories with women as heroes, because that's mm. what it is. Old fashioned. I write old fashioned adventure. But and I said this to my dad, um, my lovely dad, who is got gone now. But um, I was trying to explain that I was trying to write the sort of old fashioned novels that he used to read me like, you know, Ryder Haggard and Walt, you know Walter Scott and all of this. And I said, it's just like used to read. But the, the difference is that in my books, the girls get to have the swords and my dad said, oh, darling, I've waited all of my life for a woman with a sword on a horse to come and rescue me. And oh. I thought, well, if my dad gets it, then we're OK. <laughs> I,
2: I'm going to have a Louise moment here because Louise, Louise always gets very excited and says, I have so many questions. And I feel like I have so many questions for you just from that one sentence she said there. Um children and reading and today's reading. I mean, you're just talking about your dad reading to you. Um, I've always read to my kids. Um, sometimes you don't feel like it, because sometimes you're a bit tired at the end of the day, but we've kind of made it a thing. And even my 11-year-old daughter, who loves to read, likes to be read to. How can we encourage parents today not to give up that little thing that a kid has at the end of the day that potentially is so vital to to them wanting to read it later on in life and and, you know because I feel that reading is so important whatever you're reading.
3: Yeah I I think so but you know I'm I'm by nature, pretty optimistic. And actually, children's writing these days is completely extraordinary. And in a golden age, there's so much uh, diversity, there's so much amazing writing, there's so many people working in, in that field. And children devour books exactly as they always did. I think the, the mistake is always to make it um, all or nothing that it's incredibly important and it's got to be done. And it becomes an obligation that, as you say, you know, all of us, I, I am long past the young children's stage. Um, but I can absolutely remember, you know, getting back from work and thinking the last thing I want to do now is sit down and read the same book for the 17 millionth time. <laughs> um, but it doesn't, you know, every now and again, and it doesn't happen one night, that's, that's fine. I think that what often happens is it's got you know, this idea that it is... It's sacred, and if you miss it once, all is lost. I also think that children listening to audiobooks it's you know it's not the same as having your mum or dad or your carer or your sister or whoever it is doing the reading snuggled up with you, but it is still listening to a story, mm-hmm. And I think that's fine, and I think a lot of children they get put off reading because they're told it's something they must do, whereas a lot of children are doing a lot of reading and doing a lot of listening to storytelling on computer games now I don't think it should be an either or. It's more just that that idea that when I would watch my son on some of his historical computer games, he liked all of those quest games. I would think, well, you know, this history is pretty good. This is incredibly complicated storytelling. Um, it's an amazing thing that you can be a man or a woman, a girl or a boy, a bird, or, you know, a sword, or any of these things. So I think it's just it, it's staying fun. It's staying part of a wonderful thing to do
0: in life, rather than obligation. Her Spirit, we know how powerful women can be. We love your strength, your determination, your compassion. We love the energy that sparks when we connect and spur each other on. Her Spirit was created to ignite that flame of determination, to unleash your energy, to build your self-belief and to help every woman find a way to your healthiest mind, body and soul yet. We want to inspire one million women just like you to be active, healthy and happy because you deserve it. Head to herspirit.co.uk, join our core membership and use the code herspiritpod3 to get three months completely free. Join our monthly challenges, get access to the Her Spirit Health Hub and track your activity levels, mood, food, sleep and stress every single week with your own personalised dashboard. Get expert advice and join daily live classes that can be played back at any time. Plus, find the support that you need to get started and stay motivated. Just sign up at herspirit.co.uk and use the code HERSPIRITPOD3 to get three months completely free. It's time for you.
1: This has really encouraged me, what you're saying. I have a kind of relationship with books because I was a voracious reader as a child. I really was. And then at university, I studied um, Spanish and I did Latin American literature and literally read every book virtually ever written um, in Spanish <laughs> and then stopped, you know, can sort of stop reading for a long time. And then I'm back, I'm sort of back in again now. So, you know, it's okay, isn't it? presumably to
3: have that kind of relationship with reading? Of course it is. And I think for a lot of um, parents, particularly mothers, there's a period of about 10 years where you barely read a, a novel novel um, because you can't, you know, either you're very tired or you're trying to juggle everything or you pick things up, you put them down and somehow you're always on the same page. <laughs> like every night, it's like, oh, I'm sure I've read this page before. Um, but I, th- I think that, you know, joy, you know the, reading is joyful that's it. You know, um, it, it, it shouldn't feel like a burden. And I think that that is what happens often. You know, I have lots of members of my family, lots of nieces and nephews, and some read a lot and some read a bit and some don't read at all. And the ones who don't read at all always feel they should apologise for that. But, you know, I don't go and play football. Mm. that, you know, I mean, I like watching football, as it so happens. But you know, I I'm not off down the park on a Saturday afternoon. And I don't feel the need to apologise for that. So I think it's about yeah. making reading be part of the joyous things in life, and that you ebb and flow. And sometimes you read more than other times.
2: I can honestly say that you will always have a better night's sleep, if you, unless you get really greedy, which occasionally I do, and then find myself up till two in the morning, because you're like, I've only got 100 pages, I'm sure I can finish this. <laughs> but I always personally, I mean, we, I, I'm sure you don't, Kate, but I definitely have a habit of taking my phone to bed and going, oh, just have a look at the news. Well, oh, just have a look at Twitter. And then you're so tired, and then you read two pages, and then you don't have a good sleep anyway. So my, we always like to give top tips to our listeners is definitely find a good book, find a good author that you like. and. And read before you sleep because you know a lot of people have trouble sleeps these days. I don't know about you, Louise, but you have a better night's sleep when you've had a good read, a proper read, not the phone, not Twitter, not not Instagram. Do you read? Yeah, do you read, Kate, before you go to
1: sleep? Then
3: yeah, every night. Yeah, do you? I'm I'm a carer, so I do have my phone in the bedroom for that reason, mm-hmm. um, but I. And I I really enjoy social media and all of these things, but I don't do anything on a screen for at least an hour before I go to bed, not even, you know. And so for me, getting into bed with a hot water bottle um, and a cup of tea, (laughs) um, and I always have a hot water bottle, unless it's really hot. I mean, I always have a hot water bottle Um, and and I read every night. Mm. And you know, and I, I think like a lot of people, I've been sleeping really badly during lockdown. Um, so I have, I've actually read during lockdown and worked it out. I've read three hundred detective stories. Oh, it's <laughs> I was reading that last time. It was two hundred
1: and fifty. <laughs> it's
3: now three hundred, isn't it? Well, that oh, was because goodness. I did that interview in November, oh. and now <laughs> it's February, um, and I'm still awake. At, you know, so at some moment every night, I, I wake up because it, that is also partly with uh, you know. Parents of young children, and also those of us who are carers, you tend never to sleep entirely through a night, and sometimes you can go straight back to sleep, and often you can't. So, and old-fashioned detective stories are quite short. I should hasten to it. They're not like my books. They're not oh, like you know. <laughs> yeah, yours take
1: definitely more than well. They take it. It's me more than a week. Um, tell <laughs> yeah, me, do yeah. you and do you read on um, on Kindle? Do you actually have the
3: physical books, or do you go to a library? What do you do? I have physical books um, that I get. Either because they're somewhere about the house, or I buy a lot from second-hand bookstores, um, and you know, there's quite a lot of. I live in Chichester in Sussex, and there's sort of book exchanges where you can put, you know put one detective story in and get another one out. And I love, for me, it's it's part of the pleasure of it is the texture of an old-fashioned Fontana paperback where actually the pages are falling out, and when you break it open, you know, a bit of old cellotape from the nineteen thirties falls out on your nose and you know it's all it's all of those sorts of things. And I, I like I like the texture of it because obviously I write on a screen like everybody over the last nearly year, I've spent a lot of time interacting with people on screens. The last thing I want to do is read on a screen at night. I, you know, I, want, I want the old fashioned book that smells of dust and antiquity. Do you know, you've just, you've just, it's very interesting,
1: is it? Because it is a tactile experience and you're just talking about the texture. I just remember, and I've got them upstairs, some very, very old Enid Blyton. I mean, they're probably, you know, very, I mean, they might, I don't know how old they are, but they're really thick thick and you're right i can smell the smell of them um let's talk can we talk a little bit about about your caring because you know so many people who listening to this podcast will be like you you know in that kind of generation where you're caring for the older ones and your your children are now adults but um
3: you look after is she called granny rosie granny rosie yes she is um she's 90 Uh, She's my mother-in-law, my very, very beloved mother-in-law. She's actually lived with us for 25 years when we moved from London back to where we grew up in Sussex. Granny Rosie came to live with us then and she was that granny, you know, that did cartwheels in the garden and everybody's children wanted to play with and was amazing. So for me, it's just repaying all of that. Um, she was just the most incredible person to have around. And my parents lived around the corner as well. Um, and they, my parents used to live with us. So I I cared, helped my mother care for my father Um so he died in 2011 my mum died in 2014 and in fact i've written a book about this um which comes out in june um because it is the biggest issue for i think um facing all of us um you know obviously the world has gone very differently and changed a lot because of the pandemic. But the issue about care and who does it and how we allow older people, particularly older women to have their voices and people to live well and die with dignity and be um, respected for who they are, not reduced to a series of symptoms or whatever. But I'm very, very, very lucky. I was extremely close to my parents. My husband and I met at school when we were 15. Everybody lives close by. And it makes a world of difference, that sort of Mm. thing. So we could all live together in a three-generation household. And Granny Rosie, you know, yeah, I've known for 45 years. Um, Is that right? Yeah, 45 years. So it's not, these things make it much easier. And also she's a complete hoot and we're pals. Uh, She doesn't have any daughters. So there isn't any issue about who's doing what, you know, all of these things. And she's in a wheelchair now and needs a lot of support, but that's only been in the last few years. Um, and it's a great privilege to to be in a position to be able to care. Actually, mm. you know, I'm very, very, very lucky.
2: And, and the book, Kate, coming out. um When's it coming out?
3: It's coming out in June, um, the beginning of June for Carers Week UK, and it's called an extra pair of hands. Love that. Um, I love that you, name. Yeah, yeah. It was Granny Rosie's suggestion actually, and it's it is a love letter to my parents and to her and to um and also an attempt to try to shift the language around aging because it's it's so negative the I, we should be celebrating throwing our hats in the air that people are living longer and better for longer um but so often it's presented as a problem that people are over 80 or a problem people are over 90 um and it's very and i think i think that's not very good, and also its you know care is a feminist issue because the majority of people carrying unpaid carers are women um, the majority of people working in the paid care sector are women, and a lot of the decisions as we've seen over lockdown have been made you know forgive me lovely gentlemen listening, but have been made by all male groups, none of whom are carers um and so sometimes these are huge decisions being made about society with no women 's voices in the room and it, it's a very big issue because for I am very very lucky to love my mother-in-law to have loved my parents to have space to have a job that makes it possible many people are not in that position at all and as you say louise they're trying to care for children as well mm. or caring for one or more parents who are, are are seriously ill or you know young adults who are ill and need a lot of care uh, there are a lot of soul carers there are a lot of you know there are more than two million people over 80 living on their own uh, <laughs> so it's an enormous issue and um and I'm not really one for writing personal stuff like this, but I, I it really matters. It really matters. And I also thought, well, this can be, this will be positive, you know. Not that it's not tough sometimes. Of course, it is, and it's yeah. a book about grief as well, obviously. But, you know we've got to be we've got to find positive ways to move forward i think and there'll be so many people um
1: you know as you say in your position who'll be able to you know hopefully you can help them as well through that because you know these are going to be tough times and you talk about that you know we just get a little bit of insight in the fact that you know you don't you can't sleep at night because of it that and that's just touching the surface presumably of of the all the impact it might have
3: uh, all the impact but also i think for um what's been very interesting over this period of pandemic and confinement is that my life had got more confined over the last couple of years because of being a carer. Mm. And because any decision I was going to make would involve um sort of back up... Uh, arrangements and the things that parents know as well, the difference is of course if you're, if your your child is healthy and well and developing in in the ways that um, all parents would want their children to be able to in ideal circumstances, then obviously the journey of a child is away from you, whereas the journey of a, an older person you 're caring for is in the opposite you know obviously there 's only ever going to be one conclusion um, to that, and so there are issues of grief um i would say for a lot of women there are issues often their caring responsibilities come around the time of menopause and all of these things as well so that can be an issue you know when people are not necessarily feeling at their most perky (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) they're also dealing with very you know big issues on the other hand i spend a lot of time with people in their 80s and their 90s and they're brilliant you know fantastic they you know they're living their lives and you know and no self-pity you know, that's the thing, just getting on with it. And, um, you know, it's been a very odd experience because actually some of the things about lockdown for me, a lot of people have for the first time ever been in that position of not being able to go out, um, which any parent of young children and any carer knows what it's like. And I think there there will be many positive things in, in terms of people's understanding of what it means to be a carer that mm. will have come out of this. I mean, it doesn't in any way outweigh all the... All, you know, terrible things that this is brought about, but I think that has been quite interesting. And of course, it's meant I've been able to do lots of lovely things like this because we talk for an hour, and then I go back in the kitchen to check Granny Rosie's okay, yeah. uh, to top up her G and T. Actually, <laughs> I was going to say, um, yes, yes. I was going
1: to say, don't, don't you have a drink with her every night? And what is it? <laughs>
3: Yes, exactly. Well, she, she, I, I like a glass of white wine. Um, Granny Rosie is, uh, she, at lunchtime, she has a G&T and t we And have, we have the same conversation every day. And she'll say to me, is the sun over the yard arm? And I will say, the sun is over the yard arm somewhere. Obviously. And I will make the G&T. And the, the, the rule is not before 12. <laughs> so, uh, and she only has one, you know, with her lunch. And then when she goes to bed, she'll have a Whiskey Mac nightcap. So, you know, it's it's all very, you know, nothing to excess, all very measured. Um, And, you know, so we do, we have, you know, I'll sit one end of the table having my glass of wine and drinking one of the endless detective stories reading. And Granny will be, you know, knitting or doing a jigsaw puzzle um, or, you know, working something out. You know, one of the, the bits I think people will most enjoy in the book is last summer... When we sat at the end of the table, and Rosie suddenly decided this was the day that we needed to plan her funeral, and um, so I did not stay at one glass of wine because yeah, actually I was it say, was rather yeah. devastating the thought Gosh. of it. So by God knows what the end of the funeral is going to be like, because we were both completely <laughs> half cut by the end of it. So we're like going, oh yes, that'd be great. You know? So yeah, so she, no, she's she's wonderful, she's oh, wonderful, and I, you know, and I hope people will find the book, but it is just my experience, and I absolutely don't um in any way try to speak for other people because people's experiences are so different um and it, everything makes such a
2: difference to how easy it is or difficult it is oh, to care. I'm sure it'll be a wonderful read um you mentioned your husband and whilst you met him at school you didn't quite loves it. this story I by the way. love this story Kate <laughs> I love it I love it because I think there's probably someone. There's quite a romantic in you, I think, and also when I when I first heard about this story, you know, possibly a bit of a believer in in fate. So so tell us what happened when you came back together again after a few years apart.
3: I mean, my poor husband, who is. Uh a private and sensible person, not not at all sort of you know. Um but yes, yes, this story absolutely got out. It was you know, we were each other's childhood sweethearts and we went out when we were at school. I was at the girls' comp and he was at the boys' comp. And if you were very careful you could there was a hedge down the middle of the field that divided the two school sites. And of course you could stray towards the hedge. I mean, there were always fearsome teachers, you know, patrolling to keep everybody apart. Um, But, you know, once you're in the sixth form you're allowed to do joint things. Um, And so, and then we went our separate ways. We went to different universities. It kind of just fizzled out in the way of those things. And then, you know, eight years later we met on a train and it really was as ludicrous as it sounds that I was going down from London to Sussex to be with my middle sister who was in labour and so had rung me for that reason and I therefore was on that train in the middle of a Saturday afternoon. And my husband had been living in Paris and had come back to England for the first time in three years and got on the train and sat
0: opposite me. <laughs> what oh, are the chances. What are the chances? I mean, it was,
3: I mean, r- r- really utterly ridiculous. And um, and my lovely dad picked... Um, picked us up from the station and I said, oh, you remember Greg? And my father was, yes, of course. How lovely to see you again, Greg, like that. Got back to Greg's um, cottage where his mum was living at the moment at that, that time. And uh, Greg said, do you remember um, Kate? And granny was going, oh, hello, Kate. And then just carried on talking, you know, as if we'd seen each other last Thursday week. And, um, and actually that was very straightforward. We were right in the first place you know and oh um, it's, lo- so there it's we go. lovely
1: i mean <laughs> just the chance you know the chance of you not meeting us so were so high no i know i know and um but, but what I- did you say i mean when you saw him on the train i mean you both recognize each other immediately and well i he didn't
3: recognize me immediately because i think that girls go undergo a much bigger change mm. between the age of 15 16 17 and mid 20s um so the last time he'd seen me i you know i'd got blonde hair and was you know hadn't quite yet discovered feminism and you know all of that sort of stuff, and when we met on the train, I had a shaved head <laughs> you know and I was very much in my you know reclaiming the night and marching <laughs> period of history you know I was a cap you know a marching campaigner at this moment, so I did look really quite different um and but he didn't actually um so i mean do you know we can't really remember we we just started talking. That was it, really, and um, you know, and it and it did seem completely bizarre that it would work. And of course, he went back to Paris, and I was in London, and we were both with other people, and we just had to decide that, you know, let's. But of course, this is plays absolutely into what I was saying about being a carer. That if you've all grown up together with knowing each other's brothers and sisters, nieces and nephews, it makes all the difference to being able to, you know, if you come from a small town and you go back to the small town and you live there it it is very different from people who have don't have much family at all or don't have much family nearby mm.
1: Mm. um now so so people will listening to this podcast will will have heard that you know what did you say marching in the night and you know there's yeah. a real rod of um serious kind of um what i what i've loved about you and i love when i first met you is you back women up which is just really fabulous yeah. and you've done that with me and i know that you do that you're doing that at the moment um talking about women in history aren't you we'll come to that in a second and also um you founded you are the founder director of the women's prize for fiction what tw- 25 years ago is it now yeah
3: yes it's really important to you this, isn't it? Man and boy, as Granny Rosie would say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, but do you know, it of absolutely. But for me the the F word um has always been fairness. I mean I, I am a feminist and have always called myself one, um and I have children who call them use the word about themselves. Um, but in the end it's about common sense and fairness that it just makes sense that everybody should be judged for what they contribute and what they do in the world and how they behave, not what they look like. And that goes for you know gender, for race, for disability, for faith for all of it. because we are richer as communities and societies if everybody is able to play their best part um so you know that that's it for me and so i've always been fueled sometimes by fury obviously you know when you discover that there is still a pay gap an equal pay gap you know all of these things or when you start to learn about history and you realize that you know if you were married in the 1950s you got married you had to give your job up you know um things things don't change on their own but my i've always felt well What you do is stand shoulder to shoulder with other women, respectfully of women and men and everybody, but you stand shoulder to shoulder with other women. And if there are things that are not fair um, or should not be, then you do your best to change them. There's no there's no benefit to anybody to stand around and moan. You know, if, if something needs changing or you think it needs changing, then. Have a go. Um, and the Women's Prize was founded in that spirit. And uh, yeah, my new compa- campaign, Woman in History, has been founded in the same spirit, um, which is just, you know, I, spend a, I write historical adventure fiction. I spend a lot of time in archives and libraries. And it is really sobering how easily and quickly women's achievements and contributions vanish. Uh, because history as a discipline uh, was for a very, very long time written by a very narrow band of, of people, by male authors. Obviously, the universities were not open to women or in any country in the world. Um, and so consequently, a lot of women's experiences and achievements have keep, get, keep getting lost. And it matters because a lot of polit- politicians and politics now use the past to justify uh, bigotry and prejudice of the present. And I think, you know, every... Man and every woman and every boy and every girl and everybody who defines however they they see themselves surely believes that people should be judged on what they do. That should be it. You know, it, it's it seems a no brainer to me. So, you know, it's you know always forward in the in a positive spirit. Shall we say? And the, are you doing a campaign, aren't
1: you, at the moment about um, celebrating women in history? Aren't you? And kind of looking, asking people for who they who they would celebrate. And you've had a huge response to it.
3: Well, it's been. Um, Actually, overwhelming. Uh, yes, it started because uh, my latest novel, *The City of Tears*, is set in the sixteenth century, um, and and it's a lost child story, a Sophie's Choice novel, I suppose. Um, but all my heroes are me- uh, are, are women, uh, with the men who love them as 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 you know equal players beside them. But you'd be forgiven if you look at the sixteenth century for thinking that the only women that existed were queens and mistresses. Um, and people of a very particular high level, whereas the rest of us were there, you know, forgive me, you might well have been married to the king, but I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have been. Um, and it's you'd you'd be forgiven of thinking there were no other women. You know, it's like Lord yeah. of the Rings and the dwarves. Uh, where are the women? Um, and it's so that that's the thing that it came out of um, publishing City of Tears and, and all the research I've been doing for that whole series of books and thinking, you know, let's just let's just say, OK, tell me a woman in history you really admire. Nothing more to it than that. Uh, Just let's celebrate some incredible women's achievements. And I was not expecting, however, to be, I mean, drowning in nominations, actually. I mean, my lovely niece is sitting next door in the kitchen because I've had to ask her to come and help me type all the names up. You know, I've been sitting desperately trying to make a chart, you know, and it's just gone completely... Completely, uh Heywa well, and, and so many wonderful people um, have nominated on all social media platforms and email as well. And lots of really well-known people have joined in, which has been fantastic. And it gives me great faith because it, it really is just about celebrating women. Mm. Um, and I've only had to block three people which I think is amazing. <laughs> you know, You know, I was expecting to get a lot of, you know, uh, what's going on there, but only three people. And one of them, I think, did think it was the other Kate Moss, so that's fine. <laughs> oh, <right. laughs> I'm a
2: blocker, too. Yeah. <laughs> it has its value, doesn't it? I don't normally do it, but yeah, yeah. Oh, I think you, sometimes you have to. I think... Um, I was wondering, um, out of that list, maybe you're not allowed to say yet, is there any woman that stands out that has been nominated far and above others? Well,
3: there have been. um, I very deliberately didn't have voting because this is not about pitting women against each other. It's very much not that. It's about saying, let's uh, recognise all the achievements um, because we still have that thing of, Yes, if one woman can be the prime minister, then there's no problem. Whereas actually, the truth is that it should always be the best person for the job. And if it's we stay in the idea that there are women who are exceptional and they rise above all the rest of us. So it's very important to try and sort of get everybody. But it's been very interesting to see, for example, um, Ada Lovelace, you know, the you know possibly inventor of the computer, one of the earliest mathematicians. She has been nominated a lot. Uh, Eleanor of Aquitaine has been nominated a lot, uh, which has been, you know, very interesting. You won't be surprised to know that Mary Seacole has been nominated a lot. Um, some of the, what I think of the warrior queens of antiquity, uh, like the extraordinary Greek commander Bubalina, um, who actually commanded the Greek uh, fleet. Um, you know, in the, so, you know, in the sort of uh, 19th century, 18th, 19th century. Um, so there are certain names that come up. And what I'm trying to do is kind of ca- put people into categories. Um, mm. A lot of, um, and I've, what I've learned is, and we'll be announcing the full list on the 8th of March, and there are plans for it to be, uh, to, to carry on in, you know, in sort of a television and book format after that, which, which will be great. Um, but what I've been trying to do is kind of tell the stories um, of, different types of women from different parts of the world at different periods of history, because we've had nominations from all over the world. And some of them are extraordinary Saudi and Syrian women who are doing amazing things now, for example. And others are like from wonderfully from Lee Child. Uh, He nominated the first common ancestor, you know, the first woman, (laughs) which was rather (laughs) wonderful. I was then I was I've learned so many things. So this, of course, made me laugh. And I think it will strike home to every woman listening. It's not a surprise to know, is it, that the inventor of the dishwasher was a woman, Josephine Cochrane, for example. I love, I love her in that case. <laughs> I know, I know. So, you know, those, those sorts of things. And the fact that there was, um, you know, they, a lot of people have nominated Lily Parr, who was in the 1920s, the first female professional football player, still the only female professional prof- football player that there's a statue to. Um, and just the most, I mean, her track record makes everybody look, you know, like they have been slacking. Frankly, I mean it's just extraordinary. And I'm sure you probably knew this, but I didn't know. Um Hedy Lamar, who I remember as a you know, being a starlet, a nineteen fifties glamorous starlet, basically invented Wi-Fi as well. You know, just like Oh yes, I did what? that vague vaguely somewhere in my somewhere yeah. in the back yeah. of my brain. How yeah. fantastic. And all the you know, all of the there were many uh, working class suffragettes, Irish suffragettes, Scottish suffragettes, Indian suffragettes, Black suffragettes, all of whom are kind of left at not left out of the story quite, but the story is always told through one prism, you mm. know, of of you know a particular type of women, a particular type of time, and so I've been really thrilled that lots of men have been nominating um you know l- lovely nomination from a a young girl recently for for Ding Ling, who is you know the possibly the most important chinese uh writer uh, female writer um korean fighter pilots armenian women who rescued lots of jewish you know it's it's you just sit there thinking what have i done with my life frankly that's what it makes you think well what the question to <laughs> me is
1: what do you... so you you are i mean it needs follow up doesn't it it needs somebody to be yeah. looking at this doesn't it
3: yeah well i think i think we will do um We'll, we'll do some television and a, b- a book out of this uh, because I I wasn't expecting this. It, you know, I was expecting, you know, a few people who knew me um, to to join in, and that would be a lovely thing. But I think it I, I think it does tell you something about these times we're in, is that celebrating great things is a really good thing to do. Always, that the endless doom scroll and the misery doesn't do any of us any, we need to be alert and we need to be keeping an eye on what's going on. And there are terrible things going on all over the world and the pandemic doesn't stop those things happening. But I think it showed that people do want to celebrate great things as well and Mm. to look back in the women in whose footsteps we walk. Um, And because I'm a writer of historical fiction, obviously my purpose in writing The City of Tears and all my other novels is to tell a great story. But at the same time, it does come from a place of thinking, oh, All those women, you know, who do we know from that period? Well, people will tell me they know Catherine de' Medici and Elizabeth I. You go, hmm, what Mm. what about the others? (laughs) Um, Not the rest of them.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Let's talk about City of Tears because, um, so I I finished it this morning and I said when we started (laughs) this podcast... I'm so it's so good. The br- the ending is brilliant. Thank you. you have absolutely and I don't want to give it away for so many people But I'm not giving it away, but you have set it up so perfectly for the next <laughs> one. So Annie's reading the first in the series, aren't you,
2: Annie? Yeah, and it's brilliant. I'm it. You the Bernie it. Chambers. Yeah.
3: And, and so, so so how many are there going to be? Well, there were gonna be three, but yeah. unlike um Ada Lovelace, maths was never my strong point. And okay. my uh, it was pointed out to me that If there were only three, everybody would have to live to be about 190 in order to arrive in South Africa by uh, 1862. So the so there's four books. They they broadly speaking, you know, cover the elements. Four quartets by T.S. Eliot is is the poetry that I most value. Um, Mm -hmm. And I realise that subconsciously I'm doing that. So the first one, Burning Chambers, of course, is Fire, City of Tears, is obviously Water. The next one um, is Air, um, and it's a pirate girl story. And it's mostly on the high seas in between islands. So we're in, start in Amsterdam, and then we'll be in Tenerife, which was in the 17th century One of the world's great wine producers, Um, and then we will land finally in the Cape of Good Hope at the end of Book Three, and then Book Four will all be set in South Africa and is is Earth, Um, and it, you know, and it's the it's this three hundred year feud between two families, the Joubert family, uh, Minu and her descendants, and then their enemies, really. and, you know, people keep saying, but you must know how it's all going to finish. You're exactly. Going, oh. I'm like, well, I'm so frustrated. Kind
1: of. <laughs> I'm sort of, you know, you, you set it up. so It's a great book. It, it's so, you know, I, I couldn't, I couldn't put it down. There are parts where I just couldn't put it down at all. But that's what. so, for my, as a reader, I'm like, she must know. How could she
3: not know? <laughs> well, you know, the thing and is, tell us. <laughs> I, I tell you, well, the thing is, I know the sort of book it is. Right, But I don't know actually what's going to happen because what I learned about myself as a writer is that I need to have some fear when I'm writing that, oh, my God, is, you know, and I need to ha- keep the adrenaline, the momentum going so that that gets onto the page so that readers feel that, too, because we've all read s- so many novels that we love, but that they trail off. Um, You know, the ending doesn't quite live up to the promise of it. And a lot of that is... This does not trail off. (laughs) No, no. no. So so I need to be kind of discovering stuff as well as when I'm writing. So my first draft is all emotion. It's like, okay, let's get it down there. So with The City of Tears, I knew it was going to start in 1572. And they were going to be deciding whether to go to Paris for the royal wedding, Mm -hmm. my my first family. Um, I knew that they would go, but I didn't know who of the family would go. I knew that they would be there as witnesses to history to the St. Bartholomew's Day massacre. But I didn't know who would make it out alive or what would happen, because it's always about their personal story, their imagined story against the backdrop of the real history. So the real history's there. And that's what gives me my grounding. But, you know, I wasn't expecting it to turn into a lost child story, um, which is not really giving much away because it's on the flap of the book. Yeah, um, <laughs> um, That was not what I was expecting. And when the ending that you've just read, I wrote that obviously, um, at the end. Um, and I didn't know we were going to jump forward that much. And I suddenly thought, oh my God, how am I going to make this work? <laughs> you know, but it it was the right, it was the right ending. It's ended. really good. You know, so, And that means that I'm excited to run back to my computer <laughs> and start to tell... The next generation story. Do you know what <laughs> what's what
1: scared me, Annie? And you I know you will read it because I know you're so in. Um, is what scared me about it is that you have no
3: fear in killing off in k- killing off some of our loved characters. So I'm like, what is she going to do? Well, you see, I learned that from the great Annie Prue when I interviewed her once, and she just, and I, I'm going to do a bad Canadian accent now. And she kind of just leant across to me. She said, "You know, the thing is, Kate, if the characters don't move the uh, the plot forward, they die." <laughs> <laughs> I thought. Yep, actually, that's fine. And, you know, in, in exquisite, beautiful literary fiction, there are ideas and there's feelings and all of these things. But in adventure fiction, it's about the plot. It's about the edge of your seat stuff. Yep. And yeah, if a character is not living up to her potential or his potential, then they're out. <laughs> out they go. They're out. They're out. <laughs> but, you know, I don't, I don't decide. I, I really don't decide. I let the story do it. Yeah. Um, so I don't think, okay, this one is, this is the one that's gonna die. I'm writing those scenes and I think, oh no. Um, and it was, you know, the only time really I cried when I was writing was when I was writing the novel Citadel, which is the third in my Longodoc trilogy, which is inspired by the real story of the women of the resistance in Kakasson, whose names have been forgotten and we don't know. Um, I I knew who one of the two women who would die at the very end had to be because she was my, you know, lead character. But I didn't know who would be sitting next to her because we they know that there were two bodies in that room and nobody's ever discovered who they were. And I thought, I can write a story about the women they might have been. Oh. And when I was writing that scene and I realised who the second one was, it did make me cry. It? But it had to be her because that's,
2: that's the way the story fell out, you know. <laughs> oh, gosh, it's emotional. <laughs> I'm sitting here listening to you just thinking you have a mind so full of imagination, do you think imagination is something that we, like an athlete, can you know can get faster at runner? Can we improve our imagination and our ability to write? And, and if so, how can we do it?
3: Oh, well, that is a lovely question. Um, I think i 'm a great believer in creative writing courses and all of these kind of things because I think it's the only area of the arts where people still cling on to this idea that writing comes fully formed and perfect you know that it is a divine gift that arrives on the page you know as for its antecedents whereas the truth is that you can you can learn how to structure how to think of a novel how to put sentences together how to develop a character you can't teach imagination but you can teach skill. Mm. Um, the thing that makes a novel come alive is that indefinable bit of imagination or the spark, uh, you know, the kind of the blue gas, you know, in the in the boiler, that little, little sort of thing that is just, you can't quite put your finger on it. Um, but I, I do absolutely believe that you can teach people how to structure and make a book. And I think it's very important that these things happen. And I don't have much patience for people who are very sneery about those, because I think that by continuing this sort of myth that um, it comes all fully formed, you discourage women from all sorts of different types of backgrounds and diversities to have a go because it's the because then people try and they think, oh, this is terrible. It's not like the books I've read. Whereas, you know, writing, I, I, I'm very lucky that writing is my job, but it's hard work. Mm. I do it every day and I sit here every day and it doesn't always go very well. I've always had at the back of my mind this wonderful uh, quote attributed to Picasso, um, where it said that a young person asked him towards the end of his life when he was the world's leading artist, one of them, uh, why he still went every day to his studio to paint. And the answer is supposed to have been when inspiration arrives, I want it to find me working.
0: Oh, wow. Brilliant, isn't it?
3: I mean, that that's it, you know. So give yourself the space. Give yourself the space. Learn how to do it, Louise. You're an athlete. You know about all of these things. You didn't suddenly start doing triathlon, thinking, "Well, I'm quite fit. I'll have a go." You train and you get better and you get better and then suddenly then you're you doing that amazing stuff. I, you know, on the piano, you do your scales. You don't suddenly think, "Do you know what? I think I'll just do the Emperor Piano Concerto today." You know, you learn how to do it. You get fit for doing it. And I'm a great believer in that with writing that you you just write. In you write, and you write, and you get fitter um, with imagination specifically, as opposed to inspiration or structure. I think the most important thing is remembering that the person you are as a reader is not necessarily the person you are as a writer. So, write. You know, when I was talking about what changed for me with writing *Labyrinth*, was letting go of everything else. The only thing that matters was this character and th- that book. Um, so I allowed them to breathe rather than me smothering it from the outside in a more controlling way. And I think also don't write for anybody else. I mean, quite often people are encouraged to imagine the ideal reader. I think that's great when you're editing, but I think when you're writing, just let your imagination go where it wants. Don't be thinking, is this saleable? Should I write like this? This reminds me of something else. Just just be free with it. Um, be free with it. And I think I think that's why such a lot of writers are people who also walk a lot or run. Or I think it's a similar thing that that physicality, you can't think about anything else but the physical thing you're doing. And it helps quieten our busy brains. And when you're writing as a, a novelist, you know, what I need to do is sit here and be completely lost and immersed in the 16th century. I can't be thinking of The Dishwasher or Granny Rosie's G&T. You know, I need to be thinking only about Isminu and her daughter Marta, what's going to happen? Um, you know, I leave them when I go to bed at night in the wings and bring them on back onto stage the next day. And that's that's the only thing that matters, you know, letting your imagination find its own path, I suppose.
1: So um, for people listening to this, because I know so, you know, I mean, I, I you know, I've written a book and, I, I, and I, I've, I'm I'm stalled. I'm stalled at the moment and I'm listening. So, you know, so what you say is so, um, so interesting. So people who are listening who want to write. Top up. Give yourself space. Try it. Do it. And and perhaps do a course.
3: Well, do a course if if you're the sort of person for, for whom a course will be helpful. Yeah. Um, a, you know, I love for a, a lot course, of people, by that, the way. Yeah, yeah. You see, you see I, I do not like courses. <laughs> I, I, I do courses. I give courses, as it were. But that would never have been helpful for me. Um, for a lot of people, I think particularly for women, uh, a writing course is a way of giving yourself permission to take your writing seriously. Yeah. I think that matters. It's also often about, for most people listening, will work in one way or another. It might be unpaid, it might be paid, but everybody will work. Um, and it's about, we are very conditioned to think of, um, unless it's work, it's not legitimate we shouldn't be spending our time doing it so sometimes for people doing a course becomes part of a, a, a you know a commitment and that makes it easier to stick to but i also think that people need to try and be less um fearful about the blank page just get anything down mm. you don't have to show it to anybody but i think people often hold back and i meet a lot of people who've got three beautiful chapters and i say yeah but you need to keep going you know endlessly going over the same material it doesn't matter just If you've got nothing to say, but you know you have the impulse to write, then write a description of what the steam looks like coming out of your kettle. Write a description on what the tree looks like that you can see right outside your window. Do any writing so that the moment that your big idea comes to you, your novel comes to you, your next nonfiction book comes to you, you're ready to do it so that writing is not this alien thing. Mm. Just do it all the time. And a lot of people say, I haven't got time. Well, everybody's got time to write because we are all always standing, uh, waiting for something, whether it's, you know, cooking the supper or, you know, to get into the supermarket in these days where you have to queue or whatever. And what do we do? Well, we scroll, check Twitter or scroll. We all do it. But so when people it's not that I'm not sympathetic in terms of people have a huge number of commitments. But actually, it's not true that there isn't time. You can write three sentences every day. Mm. And before you know it, you've got 300 sentences, and then you have 3000. They might be words that will never see the light of day, but you are still doing it. It's like muscle memory. And that's what you should do, my friend. You should just write anything. Just write anything. (laughs) Don't worry about the next big book. And I know you'll be... Be, you know, people will be pestering you because your book was great. Oh, you're so sweet. Um, no, no, it's was, it was really energetic and it was really mm. fun to read and inspiring to read. And so, of course, they're going to be wanting you to write something else. Um, and you will want to write something else because I know you enjoyed the experience of it. I loved but it. it I, and like you, I just got lost go. in it. Yeah. And, and the, yeah. you know, yeah. I would start
1: writing um, and then two hours would just be gone. It was yeah. an extraordinary experience. Yeah.
3: But the thing is that you could just write anything.
1: Yeah, Okay. Just
3: write about how you're feeling about not being able to write. That's where I'm going to start. There we go. (laughs)
0: There
1: we are. We we didn't come in here for a personal pep talk. That was for everybody else listening
3: as well. £400, (laughs) please. (laughs) Pep talk from me.
2: (laughs) I figure that you're probably a very, and I'm quite sure I'm right in this, that you're a very disciplined person, but you're also driven by a huge passion to write um but what we're talking about here and I'll read if you don't mind me quoting you were asked about what would you tell give what would you give your younger self what one piece of advice would you give your younger self and it was that writing is and should be hard work that nothing arises fully formed that writing is about having the idea and sticking with it and there will be good writing days and bad writing days but unless you put something down on paper you have nothing to work with now I thought that's quite amazing because in my head I start thinking about you know the These podcasts started out to help people in lockdown, to motivate people, to not give up. And so not everyone's going to be a writer. But for me, that advice applies to so many things that that we do in life, you know, about sticking with it, applying yourself and working hard, you know, and be preparing to fail sometimes.
3: Yes, I think I think, um, you know, that the much misquoted Samuel Beckett comment, um, you know, try again, fail again. Never mind, fail better, you know I'm paraphrasing now, but I think um I think it happens with as you say, Annie, all things. It's the psychology that says, "Well, I'm going to do dry January. Oh, well, now I had one glass of wine on the thirtieth, so therefore, it doesn't matter now. I might as well drink all the wine in the whole of the world, um, or you know, I'm I'm trying to not have any sugar. I, this is not true. I'm not trying to not have any sugar, but um, you know, somebody might be doing that. Um, well, now I've had one Kit Kat. I might as well eat the entire packet of Kit Kats. And I think that's that. This all-or-nothing approach to life is about a, a, a certain high perfection standard that nobody can achieve it's about the idea that everything is all on a knife edge all of the time whereas actually what it is and most parents know this and everybody going through lockdown will know this you know you take one day at a time you know tomorrow will be better or actually it might be worse but in the end you know it it things find their place and i I think i've you know i'm i'm quite um I'm a, a an active person, and I'm a positive person by nature, but you know, I'd be lying if I didn't say that I've had lots of, you know, lying in bed at night, thinking, "Oh my god," you know, with your heart thumping, not no, you know, feeling everything's slightly out of control, or, you know, you you know, all of those things because we're all human, but it's it doesn't mean anything more than that's how you feel at that moment. Um, and I, and I believe this with, with writing, with anything that people have been doing in lockdown, there has been some good, which is about connecting with smaller things that matter and can bring pleasure. And I think I realize now that I have had a lot of that drummed into me without realizing it because of spending so much time with older people of a different generation who did not expect to have everything all the time, did not, um, have a very wide range of foods to choose from because there was rationing or it was during the war, um, who found a way of taking pleasure in smaller things. And I think that that is something that I've consciously tried to do within lockdown, realise that even on a day where I'm feeling a bit low, and there have been days, of course, think, you know, that is amazing. That tree, because we've been in lockdown, I have seen the leaves of that tree for 11 months come into leaf, and to bloom, and to start to fade. And now just about they're starting to come back again. And how? And just try to think, okay, normally I would have been charging about. Mm. You'd have been on a world tour, wouldn't you? I would have been on a world tour, and that would have been lovely. (laughs) But, so it's, you know, I don't want to sound all Pollyanna, and it's all about just how you look at things. It isn't. People's situations are completely different. People have enormous pressures um, on them, and everybody's situation is different. So it's not just let's all... Think positively, and then the world is better. That's not true, but I do also think that you know tomorrow is another day. Mm. You know, start a new day, start afresh, um, and and you know I think I think those things can make a great deal of difference to how we feel, even when we're feeling disappointed or. That, you know nothing's happening or you know getting a bit older or you're worried about you know wh- whatever any of us worry about you know we all we all have things that we worry about
1: um oh it's so much honestly it's been so lovely and Annie hasn't it this conversation and we can't let you go but without telling us so you, I know you're very organized you get up very early what
3: time is it you get up well when I'm writing yeah I get up about half, half past three four when I'm <laughs> just love you know it. I, I, I no, I don't do that when I'm not writing. It's just that that's the best time yeah, then, for me. And then, but you, you know. do, um, uh, and you, and I then, go to bed at half past eight. Oh, do you? Okay, right. Yeah, yeah. I go to bed really early. Okay. Yeah. So um, my day is just like you know, I'm basically a child. You're basically like <laughs> I am on the days when I'm working yeah, yeah. as well. Um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. And, and but
1: exercise, you do, you do walk, and I think you run as well. Tell us, take us through what you do.
3: If if either of my children were listening, they would be very sweet if they heard me use the word run okay Um, (laughs) uh, what what i do is i stagger along on the treadmill firstly i live in a small town there's no way i'm going out in public running i'm very clumsy and it will be every other person will be like morning morning." so i can't do that at all i I don't i also i don't have kit you know I'm, i'm allergic to kit i still have a terrible pair of i'm wearing them now tracksuit bottoms that are jack wills for a 14 year old boy that's my that's my workout outfit and i've put a jumper on for you for you ladies but otherwise oh,
1: look, we did look i
3: did the same so look i'm wearing i'm wearing mine no no exactly yeah yeah and slippers yeah there we go we've all got that on so no we, we've all got wise to this um so but i do yeah i i've, I've got a treadmill at home i've got um which uh, is fantastic so i try to run 3k maybe five times a week which on the is treadmill, good yeah brilliant which is plenty enough of a woman of my age because i don't i'm not an athlete i don't want to be um super fit i want to be healthy mm-hmm. um that's it so it's for me it's about keeping healthy and i walk a lot um particularly in the earlier parts of lockdown i've been very busy with the with the city of tears and publication so the last couple of weeks have been not so good but you know i walk you know seven or eight kilometres a day if I can. And where the weather's nice, Granny Rosie in the wheelchair and that's, you know, pretty good workout actually. Because yeah, hills you know, and pills and arms and all of that sort of stuff. Um And in the old days, you know, I used to I don't do wild swimming or any of the you know, proper swimming, but I do. I like swimming. Um, I was I was hopeless at team sports and I'm of that age where it put me off exercise forever, really. So I only have discovered exercise as a joyous thing to do and a liberating thing to do as an older woman, Um, you know, because I was, you know, my memories of being picked last for every single team, you know, still still stay with me. It's you devastating. Know, I, was, I was so bad. Oh. Devastating. It's like, you know, it's why I had to be a SWAT, you see, because like, <laughs> otherwise I would have, that, that was why I was a SWAT, really. Um, yeah. So I, I do a lot of that. And obviously we, we've got a dog. So the dog is elderly also. So mm. we go very slowly around the block. But um, yeah, but I mean, I, I like moving. I think better when I'm moving. So,
2: Louis, shall I ask Hey, a, a br- the brilliant question that we had oh, yeah, in from one of our I've lovely got... listeners? Yeah, go on. Um, it, it, it's, it's very funny because it starts with, like <laughs> I thought you meant the other Kate Moss in brackets yeah, yeah. without an E. I was going to ask her how on earth she manages to maintain her figure and eat a balanced diet and why, <laughs> at the age of 46, hasn't she got a or muffin top? But as it is Kate Moss with an E, I would like to know when she worked in publishing... did she deal with being a woman in what was presumably quite a male dominant environment and was there anything in particular that she found more frustrating or difficult to overcome well thank you for that lovely question the one thing i will answer about balanced diet is i'm
3: vegetarian and i've been since i was 10.
0: and i think that
3: is yeah i always thought it was a i always thought it was putting a dead thing in your mouth in a way that was not pleasant so, uh, you know, my poor mum, you can imagine, you know, we had very traditional meals. And in the end, I, I have a tiny bit of meat at the side of the plate. In the end, she gave up. So I've, I've there are so many things I've never tasted of meat and fish. Um. Anyway, that's by the by. Um, funnily enough, to to your lovely listener, when I was in publishing, which was the, um you know, early 80s uh, to the early 90s, publishing was, there were a lot of very, very strong and powerful women in publishing. Now the head of every single big publishing company is a, a man. So, in fact, that's what I mean about the, um, the idea of the exceptional woman often doesn't help things to change for all women and all women from particularly from diverse backgrounds and all of these things. And there's very active uh, campaigns at the moment, particularly to improve the diversity of publishing, which is, is very poor, has not really kept up with what people write or read. Um, but publishers are addressing that. Um, the thing that there was, though, was particularly in my first job when I was a secretary. Um, And it's a wonderful thing, this. This is, again, something that we should see as a positive thing. When I talk to my children about it, Um, there was just the assumption that if there was a man who was behaving inappropriately, it was your job to deal with it. And these things have changed. And this is great. Um, And, you know, all of my friends of my age, I'm 59, I'll be 60 this year. We all have been in those positions of removing hands where they should not have been, um, looking out for younger women in our turn, um, saying to people, as somebody said to me in my first job in publishing, make sure you don't find yourself on your own at night in the office with that person. Kind of open secrets about the behaviour and all of these things. And those days have gone. Not everywhere and not in every industry. And we know there's a great deal of exploitation in, in certain industries. But in terms of general attitudes to employment and how women and men and and race and respect and, you know, all of those things, things have changed a lot. Um, It's interesting because, of course, that is terrific. The only thing that I do feel is that you learnt resilience because essentially the message was, if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. So you did learn to handle the heat. And I'm not sorry about that because I think a lot of the things that I have done in life, particularly when I've had to stand firm about things, that kind of resilience that I I had to find in myself as a younger woman working um, helped towards that, actually. Um, so, you know, I, you know, things have changed a lot, but I, I think this idea of, of women being resilient, for me, it all comes back to the same thing, women looking out for other women, um, you know, other, older women, you know, looked out for me, and I did that in my turn. I'm really grateful that that is no longer essentially part of a senior woman's job yeah, spec. Yeah. And you know,
1: yeah. um, we're going to let you go because I know you've got a, a dog that needs a walk. Annie's going to got a dog that needs a walk. I've walked my dog, so I'm feeling royally virtuous. Oh, you are! <laughs> ah, look at you. <laughs> it's very unusual. Um, just, I suppose. Yeah. Last thought, really. You know, um, you know, th- this podcast's been uh, s- such a journey for us because we started right at the beginning of lockdown, sort of by mistake. We didn't know it was coming. Um, and we and we ask our our guests for sort of top tips, sort of, you know, kind of health-wise or mentally to keep us kind of going, really?
3: Well, yes, mini cheddars are not your friend. I mean, that... You know, I love I, mini cheddars. I wish I could I love them. mini cheddars. Um, and, you know, the thing is that a bag of... As with all things, it's Alexander Pope and the Golden Mean, isn't it? That one bag of mini cheddars is fine. Yeah. All the bags of mini cheddars is not fine. Uh, a glass of wine is fine all the rest of the wine, not fine. So you know? moderation. Um, moderation. I think I think that is the thing. But I also think that um, I, I, I don't really do much in this field in terms of sort of wellness and all of these things. I just kind of get on with it. Uh, you know, I'm a little bit too old for a lot of the, the language and the way that things have gone. But I do believe absolutely in giving yourself a treat and being kind to yourself. I think that is really, really important. I think women, particularly in lockdown, are particularly all my girlfriends who have... School age children are being asked to do everything, um, and you know it's not to say that there aren't lots of amazing partners, husbands, brothers, sisters, whoever is in your bubble or your your family, however you define that. Um, but I think that what has happened is we are seeing women's um, work being compromised for childcare. Uh, we are seeing things changing in the world of work that will take a long time for women of the generation beneath me to get back to. Um, And I think, therefore, that within the context of that, it's, you know, if you've had enough, it's okay to go into the kitchen and say, do you know what? I'm just now going to sit down and read a book. Or do you know what, everybody, I'm just going to take, I'm just going out for a walk. If you can, Mm. you you know, you might not be, you might be a sole parent, you might be on your own, a sole carer but be kind to yourself and give yourself some treats. Um, And, you know, and for for me, that's, you know, when I finish at my desk in the day, I go into the kitchen and Granny Rosie and I, and my husband as well, if he's here, and our children, if they're here, um, you know, we'll just, I'll just sit down and have a glass of wine and we'll have a chat. Uh, You know, not everybody can do that. Um, I, that time that I love so much is the time that is the children time. And every day whenever I'm feeling a little bit blue about lockdown still going on and everything, I thank everything that I do not have children that I'm homeschooling. I don't know how any of you are doing it. I think it's just epic work. And therefore, the treats and the patting yourselves, ourselves on the heads and the backs and being proud of what we do achieve, not always thinking about what we didn't. I think that, for me, is the lesson. Look at what you did, not what you failed to do. Oh, Kate
1: Moss, it's been such a pleasure.
3: (laughs) Thank you so much for spending an hour of your
1: precious (laughs) time. (laughs) Oh, Annie, what an absolute pleasure to spend an hour with... Kate Moss in her company she's just fantastic isn't she
2: what a lovely chat Louise I could have honestly spent the rest of the day chatting with Kate I really enjoyed that well Annie I know you've got to go for a walk and actually you're not just walking you're
1: doing as part of feet first February you have agreed to do this marathon and it's
2: incoming isn't it To be honest, Louise, I'm a little bit nervous about the distance because whilst I'm fit, it's been a couple of years really since I've done any big long runs. But you know what? I like a challenge, so I'm actually quite looking forward to it, although I know it's going to be a little bit painful.
1: Oh, it will be fun though. It'll be just great. And I know so many people are involved in, in doing different
2: distances and I'm sorry I'm not. I'm not going to worry too much about the time. I'm just going to go out early next Sunday morning. And have a nice little run around the Surrey countryside and um, just enjoy myself. But I'm more interested to hear how the other Her Spirits are getting on. Um, Kath Pendleton, she'll be running a half marathon over the weekend down there in Wales. Lovely Dr Nigat as well. She's been taking part in Feet 1st February. Um, Juliet Clark as well. So there's going to be loads of women out there um, doing amazing things, have been doing amazing things all throughout February. No, no, it's good.
1: It's really good. Um, I'll be on my bike for the Her Spirit tour as well, which is still going on. We've got another one, which is really good. Thank you as well to all our lovely listeners. And we've been reading some of your reviews. This is so sweet of you. Thank you. Be listening for a while. Love Louise and Annie and all the inspirational women. Wow. Victoria Milligan, what an inspirational woman. She is given all she's been through. I love that podcast, Annie. And thank you so much for
2: being in touch. I know so many people have sent messages, particularly about that one, actually. And this is from ABC83. I've loved this podcast since the first lockdown and being a mum of sons and a sports coach, I am a massive fan of Judy Murray and loved that podcast a few weeks ago. And I also love how you two interact with your guests. Oh, lovely message. Thank you for that one.
1: And Kate was saying, wasn't she, because she's been on a, like a world tour from her from her writing room, um, saying that this podcast has been unlike any other one. It's just like we're sitting chatting, which is in our kitchen, which is what it's like, isn't it, Annie? It's
2: been wonderful. And wow, what a compliment from Kate Moss saying that she enjoyed this more than any other podcast she's done. (laughs) We'll take that. We'll take that. And can I just say... 150,000 downloads. Isn't that amazing? It really seems like yesterday it was 100,000. So thank you. Thank you everyone for listening. And thanks for your suggestions and reviews. We really do appreciate them. Yep. Take care. We will speak to you soon. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Hi, my name's Mel Barry and I'm one of the co-founders of Her Spirit. I hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. These podcasts would not have been made possible without the support of the brilliant MediChecks. MediChecks offer an easy and affordable way to check your health with their simple and personalized blood tests. From hormones and nutrition to cholesterol and diabetes, there is something for everyone. Just go to MediChecks.com to find out more. Have a great day.